0: Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast, your source for policy rants and raves from Tech Freedom, your Washington, D.C. advocate for the freedom to tinker and innovate. I'm Evan Schwarzschrauber, your host. On today's show, broadband deployment and adoption in Native American lands. Joining me in our D.C. studio to discuss this is Jim Dunstan, the founder of the Mobius Legal Group. Jim, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, Evan, for having me.
0: And also joining me is Social Assassin and President of Tech Freedom, Baron Soka. Baron, thank you for joining me.
1: I, I would laugh, but I'm not sure what that means.
0: <laughs> well, let's get right into it. So Jim, uh, before we delve into the issue, how did you get involved in issues of broadband deployment and, uh, on tribal lands?
2: So Evan, I've spent almost all of my 30 plus year career sort of on the cutting edge of technologies and both in, the, in telecommunications and computer game and in outer space law. I had the opportunity about seven or eight years ago um, to help the National Congress of American Indians write the comments. Uh, for the National Broadband Plan that the FCC adopted in 2010. Uh, I then uh, had the opportunity to do some work for the Navajo Nation, and I've represented now a, a number of other tribes um, o- over the years. And so it's really interesting for, for someone sort of mid-career to suddenly look in the rearview mirror and having seen all this great technology, realize in the rearview mirror that or third world countries within our own borders here in the United States.
1: It reminds me of that great William Gibson line where he said, the future is already here, it's just not very evenly distributed yet. (laughs) Yes,
0: absolutely. Well, let's get exactly to that issue. According to the latest FCC data, 41% of residents on tribal lands lack access to a broadband connection, so the adoption number could be even lower than that. And uh, that's compared to 10% in the United States as a whole. So, Jim, why is there such a disconnect, pardon the pun? So I wish there was an easy answer to that, but it's, it's,
2: it's complicated and it's sort of you know, multiplicative in terms of, of why that hasn't happened. I mean, first, you have to understand that telecommunications in this country was rolled out by private companies to those who would pay for it. I mean, it's not like um, electricity or water or other municipal services that are generally provided by the government. It's all done by private company. And so they have traditionally rolled out service to only those people who are willing to and able to pay for it. Uh, And so you've got two huge factors in Indian country. First is the very, very low uh, population densities on most reservations. Uh, Secondly is the very, very low incomes um, of most Native Americans living on reservations. And then third, if you look geographically where most of the reservations are, they're in horribly difficult places to build. A really rugged terrain. Um, if you look at the Navajo Nation, for example, it's the size of West Virginia, and yet you have mountain peaks and valleys, places where it's really expensive to string wires.
0: So yeah, you've got the the problem of a lack of demand is that as you said people who are not necessarily willing or able to pay for it coupled with just a really really difficult terrain and the costs are really really high. Um, what what is being done now to address this problem?
2: Well, historically the FCC has had what's known as the universal service fund and and that is, you know, that Really substantial amount on your telephone bill that you see in the bottom line that that where the I think FCC eighteen
1: percent eighteen percent
2: yeah yeah the 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 factor is now at eighteen percent um, and so the FCC charges everybody in the country uh, a fee and that goes into this giant pool which is estimated to be nine point four billion dollars this year and then it's allocated back out under four different programs. Uh, under the Universal Service Fund. There's the high cost program, and that goes directly to uh, carriers to sort of subsidize their their building out. Um, The second one is the Lifeline program, and that's a subsidy to uh, individual users and I want to get back to that a little bit later. Um, the third is the E-rate program, or the schools and library program, which subsidizes um, connections to schools and libraries. And finally the rural health care, which is really a, it's a pretty small. It's only a couple, you know, small couple hundred million, but you know, compared to 9.4 billion, that's a that's a you know, small drop in the water. So the, those are the main programs um, that the FCC uses to try to incentivize carriers to, to to deploy further and further into rural America.
0: So as you say, Americans are paying 18 percent fees on their phone bills. I mean, their phone bills have been high, you know, for that reason in part. And um, the idea behind that is that it's going to work, is that that money is going to go to connecting the unconnected. So why hasn't it worked?
2: Well, by and large, it has worked. I mean, we now have telephone penetration in this country at about 98 percent. The problem is in Indian country, it's still down below 75 percent. And that's because that last Sort of one percent of the population is really expensive to serve. Right. Um, I mean, just for example, if if you're an, a carrier in the city, your cost to string that next wire to the next apartment um, next door is in the hundreds of dollars, maybe, maybe you know, tens of dollars. Um, but when you're talking about now the distance between two people on a reservation being five or six or seven miles, stringing that wire out that extra seven miles. Is incredibly expensive, and so it's just difficult to do.
0: And uh, is the funding that comes through these uh, these universal service programs? It, can it be used in a better way? I mean, are there bureaucratic problems here? Is is E rate funding being underutilized? Is the application process too complicated? Well,
2: I, I think. In terms of E-rate, you're absolutely correct. I mean, uh, Commissioner Pie's dissent in the in the E-rate modification order from last year absolutely hit it on the head. You've got a system that is so complicated that your average school district has to hire a consultant to the tune of fifty or a hundred thousand dollars a year just to shuffle the paperwork around. And if you're talking about a, you know, a Native American tribe, and that's money that can't Come from the, the funds, the E-rate funds themselves. It's got to be, it's got to be paid for separately. And so, uh, utilization on the E-rate program in Indian country is really low. But more importantly, the FCC hasn't even bothered to keep statistics on it, so we don't know. I mean, I know from my clients and and, and from those that I've talked to that very few, relatively few um, school districts and libraries in Indian country participate in the E-rate program. Whereas if you look at a place like Chicago or New York, I mean, literally hundreds of millions of dollars are going to those places.
1: So, so Jim, what, what do you think is, is driving that? Uh, Commissioner Pai complains, and he, he was on the podcast last week, about the FCC really not focusing on rural America, including Indian country. What do you think's behind that? If you want to know my real cynical,
2: my real cynical reason for it, the Universal Service Fund and, and the statute says that the FCC will assist in deploying telephone and broadband to all Americans, and yet this administration has changed that to say that they will deploy telephones and broadband to 99% of the population. So there's 1% of the population that has basically been cut out, and that 1% of the population are the most rural people in the United States, and many of those I I think are, are in Indian country.
1: And they're doing that because that that frees up funding that then can be used to provide significantly faster service in areas that uh, previously wouldn't have gotten as much money, like in cities.
2: Yes. Or to be even more cynical,
0: they're playing to their political base, which is is urban uh, and not rural. And the FCC is supposed to be an independent agency, but we've talked in the past about how politics have increasingly played a pivotal role in these proceedings and As you say, a lot of the people who support the FCC, more regulations, they tend to be located in urban areas which are better connected and have higher speeds, but rural America kind of gets forgotten. And one of the issues is that the FCC doesn't see wireless as a viable substitute for wireline broadband, even in areas like Native American tribal lands where the terrain makes wireline just unworkable. Is that part of the problem, too? Yes, absolutely.
2: I mean, it, it certainly is cheaper to deliver wireless because you only have to put towers up. Uh, you still have to put a lot of towers in a place like the Navajo Nation, you know, the size of West Virginia. Right. It certainly is more cost effective. But then you then you have the FCC almost constantly redefining what broadband is, going from three megabits down, one up you know, to 10, and now up to 25. And the problem there is um, in order to participate in some of these programs, a carrier has, has to guarantee that they're going to deliver that 25 megabit do- download, and they, it just can't be done in Indian country.
1: Well, well just, just to be clear though, Jim, that, that 25 megabit threshold, that's the definition for the FCC's broadband report under Section 706. They, they've, they've used that to say that, that broadband isn't being deployed adequately, even though there's lots of good news about broadband. But they've insisted that they're still going to, to define broadband as 10 megabits per second for universal service funding. So what, what's the problem?
2: Well, even at 10 megabits, um, I it, mean, it's very difficult to get uh, on a mobile device, um, even, even you know, 4G LTE. Um, that's stretching the, the, the technology. In a you know, very
1: low density area where and, you're far from the tower.
2: Exactly, exactly. And you've you've got to be pretty, pretty close to a tower to be able to get Um, to get that full 10 megs.
0: All right, so clearly there's a gap here, and uh, we've mentioned some of the steps that have been taken. What more can be done to improve deployment and adoption on tribal lands? There was a GAO GAO report. Uh, What do you think of these recommendations, Jim?
2: Well, I, I like the recommendations. Um, you know, one of the major recommendations is that the FCC needs to work more closely with the rural uh, utility service, the RUS. Um, and and I've been at plenty of conferences where both the FCC and the RUS were there, but in many instances they're talking past each other. They're certainly not uh, developing um, educational materials together. Um, they're two separate agencies who sort of shake hands at conferences, but as far as I can see, don't work very closely together and I think that's really important because the RUS, you know, we're utility services, that's where the real money is here for, for capital development in any country um, and that's where it's going to have to come from and unfortunately those numbers keep going more and more on the loan side and less and less on the grant side. And doing loans in Indian country is is difficult because you don't have any collateral. Uh, Tribes can't collateralize their land because they don't own it. It's owned in trust for them. And so the whole
0: sort of economic model breaks down. So we talk about how wireless is a potential solution to some of the more difficult areas. Uh, What about satellite-delivered broadband, especially for these really, really tough-to-reach areas? Um, Is there more that the government, the FCC, other agencies can be doing to encourage the use of satellite-delivered broadband?
2: you're probably talking to the wrong guy on that one <laughs> I am not a satellite broadband proponent because in the instances that I've seen it deployed um, it works fabulously for the first guy it works well for the tenth guy and by the time the hundredth person comes on everybody it's just crap so the signal just gets too diluted it, it, it get the pie just gets sliced too thin um, and there just isn't enough enough capacity uh, you know because it's a you know, one-point, you know, multi-point, you know, situation, you've got a huge funnel of, of fitting into that one, one channel of spectrum.
1: But there is some good news on that front, Jim. I mean, I understand that um, my old client, Biasat, uh, has just launched a new, new set of KA-band satellites that would have hugely larger throughput. I think they're three terabit satellites. I mean, in other words, the technology does continue to get better, and, and as we're seeing uh, launch costs fall and companies like SpaceX be successful in, in the launching reusable launch vehicles we may actually finally see those those lower orbit satellites that are closer have less latency that work better for things like doing VoIP over a satellite connection or, or, or video streaming uh, are, are you not optimistic about those
2: I'm optimistic but cautious because it's not only the technology problem it's a it's a marketing problem and it's a business problem because oftentimes Um, You always hear the sort of up to speeds, Um, satellite carriers in the past have been notorious for essentially selling that same bandwidth two or three or four times over. And when you, you layer on all those different contracts over that same satellite circuit, that's when you start getting getting congestion and just slowing down. So there's got to be a, sort of a change in, in, in business practices, I think, in the satellite operators. Well, uh,
1: there's some other good news. We, we talked about this recently on the show. The uh, House Energy and Commerce Committee is pushing forward a bipartisan bill that would try to make it easier to use federal land for broadband deployment. Uh, for example, today, a lot of companies that have tried to deploy uh, fiber, whether that's for backhaul, for wireless towers, or for wireless broadband, or, or for doing wire line service, have run into problems just getting access, getting stuck in environmental impact statements and, and historical impact statements. And especially if you're talking about Indian land, you know, you may have other issues about potentially crossing uh tribal graveyards and so on. Uh, And and this bill is intended to make that easier. So are people talking about that in Indian country?
2: Absolutely. One thing that tribes do recognize is is the rights-of-way problems for most reservations, especially the larger reservations, are Humongous. They're, they're horrible. They know that they've got a problem, and both this bill as well as the recently passed bill um, allowing um, tribes to not have to go, uh, do, allow them to do leases without having to be approved by BIA is a huge step forward. But things work slowly sometimes on reservation. I know in, in, in several instances, um, even though a tribe may have authority. Um, to do leasing and do rights-of-way without you know, uh, getting the BIA involved, they're slow to come around to doing that just because they've done it a certain way for so many generations. Um, you know, Change is, is difficult. And yet, on the other side, there are those within tribes who, who recognize that that's the one thing that they could do to, to make it so much easier for tribes, to, for carriers to come on.
1: Uh, so, Jim, how, how does this work? I mean, states have their own uh, telecom regulators. Do tribes?
2: Actually, the the Navajo Nation is the only uh, tribe, and I represent the Navajo, the uh, Navajo Nation Telecommunications Regulatory Commission. They have their own little FCC, and they have their own uh, Navajo statutes and their own regulations, and and it's the first tribe to sort of begin to try to exercise a little bit of of tribal power. Um, And and by the way, the the New Mexico PUC, as well as the Arizona. the Corporation Commission that sits the, the Arizona PUC are very supportive of, of the Navajo stepping up and, and, and doing you know some, some of their
1: own regulation. And is that a good thing? Or what does it mean for the average user on the tribal lands?
2: I, I think it's a very good thing. Um, we've seen on Navajo uh, telephone penetration in telephone penetration not broadband telephone penetration in 2000 was still below 50 percent. Um, it's now it's at 75 percent. And and some of that is attributable to having a a, a certain regulatory um, so carriers know who they're being regulated and what the regulations are because otherwise it's a you know, it's it, pun fully intended it's the wild west out there and and has been for for many many years and they're also
1: regulating the rates that are, are charged for access to lands that might be owned by the tribe or the federal government
2: yes only only as to only rates as to. Uh, and towers and things like that, not carrier rates. Um, NAVO have been very careful to say that they're they are not getting into rate regulation of either landline and mobile, which obviously they can't under, uh, under the 96 Telecom Act.
0: All right. So there are some efforts to clearly address the gap. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, 41% of residents on tribal land lack access to a broadband connection, and one of these efforts is, the, uh, is a conference that you just got back from Jim. It was the second annual uh, conference, uh, Wiring the Res. It took place uh, in Arizona, uh, sponsored by the Arizona State University and the American Indian Institute. And it was held at the uh, Arizona Gila River Reservation. Uh, you spoke on a panel. Uh, tell us about the panel, about the conference uh, takeaways. Uh, were you encouraged by what you heard?
2: Sure. The, the The panel I was on was was called "Doing Due Diligence by Tribes," and we got together a, cu- a couple of experts and a couple of tribes that had done uh, had had rolled out their own services and sort of the stories uh, of how that happened. and And the focus there was to Well, my talk was kind of doing a a systems checklist of what you want to look at. Do Do you want to buy a carrier? Do you want to create your own carrier? Or do you just want to try and set an environment to encourage a carrier to come? Come onto your reservation to offer services, and then we had a presentation from Nez Perce, which has done a bro- their own broadband um, as well as the the Navajo Gaming Commission, and they talked about their story of ge- of getting uh, a very large pipe uh, to their casino located uh, just east of Flagstaff, on the on the very tip corner of the of the Navajo Nation. And so the first day I, I thought was really interesting, a lot of good success stories, a lot of good discussion about how do we how do we bridge this di- digital divide um, the second day was uh the e commerce side of it and and what Tribes can do about it. And I was actually very excited uh, about that because I'm a, you know, I'm an internet geek. Uh, you know, I've been with the internet since it since it got first rolled out, and, and I've always said I, I'm very encouraged about what you could do uh, for tribes. The, the ability for native artisans to get their, you know, their artworks, their their kachinas, their rugs, their jewelry directly onto the internet um, because they make so little percentage uh, from from all of their artisan works because of all the middlemen involved. Well, as it turned out, the first half of the day was talking about tribes doing payday loans, you know, 700% consumer loans, um, and why that is legal and should remain legal. And the second half was internet gambling. Uh, and and I heard the term used, uh, this was all about lawyer-created economic development, and basically a bunch of smart lawyers figuring out how to find loopholes in federal laws that wouldn't apply to tribes. and and, and I sat there, sort of scratching my head, saying, "I'm working this hard to bring broadband into the Indian country so that it can be used for payday loans and and, and online gambling." Well,
0: Jim, uh, it's my money, and I need it now. <laughs> it is, <laughs>
2: but what you're going to have to pay back is your money plus a whole bunch more.
0: <laughs> so, uh, or what approach would you rather they take? So if if their idea is that the, the purpose of deploying broadband is to have payday loans and internet gambling, I mean, w- what's wrong with that approach? What would you prefer?
2: Well, I don't think, the problem with that is, is one, the tribes aren't actually funding these payday loan companies. They're being funded by white men bringing money onto the reservation and basically laundering it through the, the tribe. The tribe may own the, the lending company, but most of the money doesn't stick to the tribe. They get a small percentage of that. Same thing with, with gambling. Um, the casinos, they've done better on, in terms of having more of it stick. And at least there's some infrastructure there, um, they, you know, requiring people to build buildings and provide jobs. But these types of online services are, are essentially, other than the servers being housed on, on the reservations, don't really build any economic development in, in, in Indian country. So I would you know, encourage tribes to try and find other online businesses that in fact do provide jobs and, 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 and do allow for sovereignty and do allow for, for them to develop their own you know, citizens.
1: Yeah, and, and I, ideally, look, I mean, Jim's from Arizona. I'm from New Mexico. We're, we are two white guys, but we did grow up uh, either very near Indian country or, or worked with it. And, and I think the point here is that the Internet has the potential to – to empower everybody on, on reservations, right? In a way that allows them to, if they want to, to continue to live in Indian country and yet participate in the modern economy. So it, the point is not just, oh, they could create cute wares, but they could do whatever they want in just the way that everybody else can. It's the same thing that is true for a stay-at-home mom in in suburban America, in the Midwest, is true for someone in Indian country. They could create a business and, and do what they want to do in a place that they love. And, and, so the goal here, from my perspective, would be let a 1,000 flowers bloom, do what you can to promote broadband uh, deployment and adoption. And, and that means, number one, making sure that it's easier to deploy, not, not just through subsidies, but, but, but dealing with the, the very serious problems that we, we alluded to in the last show about, about deployment across federal lands. And then, two, deal with adoption. I mean, we've, we've touched on this a few times, but the data are very clear that in most cases, price is not the primary obstacle to adoption. It's a lack of perceived relevance. So it's not enough just to get people the, the service or even to subsidize them having it. You've got to have some kind of uh, educational support for that. And that means making sure in the schools and in, in outreach that, that parents know why it's relevant and that that they, as their kids grow up, are encouraged to get online, right? That, that's probably... The only way you're going to bring the non-adopters in Indian country, just as in cities and in rural America, everywhere, uh, into the Internet economy.
0: Well, there are efforts in Congress to make broadband deployment easier
1: across the country, and we'll certainly be tracking those and discussing
0: them on the podcast. But that's it for today's show. My guests have been Jim Dunstan, the founder of the Mobius Legal Group. Jim, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Evan. And, of course, uh, our dear leader at Tech Freedom, Baron Soka, who also joined. Baron, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Follow us on Twitter at TechFreedom or on Facebook.com slash Tech Find this podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It will really help us out. Thank you for listening.
1: The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.